Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Lee Riley. Lee is a partner in Foley's Milwaukee office with a practice focused on employee benefits and executive compensation. Lee is also vice chair of the firm's business law department. This conversation is particularly fun for me because I routinely meet with Lee in her role as vice chair, but I have not had occasion to talk to Lee about where she grew up or why she attended law school or even really to talk to her about her practice. So to hear Lee reflect on growing up in Houston, Texas, attending Texas Christian University for undergrad and the University of Pennsylvania Law School was very, very interesting to me. In particular, she reflects on how growing up she was a bit of a bookish child who really, really enjoyed school. But she talks about how it was hard adjusting to law school as somebody who was used to always getting that, you know, gold star or that that A plus grade. Additionally, Lee wears a variety of hats in Foley, including helping to guide Foley attorneys and figuring out business development. So we talk quite a bit about business development and the different approaches to it because surprise, surprise, Rainmaker is not the only approach to business development in a law firm. I also talked to Lee a bit about why it was she chose a benefits and executive compensation practice. And she surprises me with her answer because I hate to spoil it, but she basically says it's one of the few practices where she felt like it was possible to know the answer. And also Lee gives some wonderful advice about the importance of failure, embracing failure early and not being afraid to fail. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lee Riley. Lee Riley, welcome to The Path and the Practice. We're going to jump right in, and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction. Sure thing. I'm Lee Riley. I'm a partner at Foley & Lardner in the Milwaukee office, and my area of practice is employee benefits and executive compensation. Thank you so much for that. We're going to, as I always do, I ask the same question every single time, but where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Texas, in Houston, Texas, for the most part, although I did go to college at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. So I grew up in Houston and then a little bit in Arlington and then Fort Worth. Um, But I also spent my summers with my grandparents in Maryland. So I feel on the one hand, I'm a Texas Southerner at heart, but I also have a little bit of an East Coast from being in Maryland in the summers. That's kind of funny. I would spend the the summers with my grandparents in South Carolina. (laughs) And I don't know if I could say I have much of a connection to the South, but certainly that you're spending your formative years in a place does create a connection for you. So I can understand that. But I want you to paint a little bit of a picture for me of what it was like growing up in, in Texas. Like if I found you, say, in middle school, what was life like? What were you into? So I've always been a huge reader. I probably spent most of my childhood living more in books than in reality. You know, I was I loved Anna Green Gables, I loved Little Women, I loved Nancy Drew Mysteries, you know, all that stuff. So I just loved, loved, loved to read. I remember being a kid 
And Saturday was chore day at the house. You know, you had to vacuum or clean bathrooms or whatever your chore was. And I, I would be so mad, not that I had to do the chore, but I had to stop reading my books in order to do the chore. So it's a big bookworm. I was always a straight A student. School is very important to me. It's where I felt successful. Yeah. And I had a few friends, of course. It wasn't that I was a social outcast by any means, but it just, I'm a huge introvert, like a massive, massive introvert in the biggest sense of the word. So I pretty much enjoyed my own company and was very comfortable being by myself with my books. That is so funny. I don't know if I expected you to say you were an introvert. We may need to connect back to that as we talk about your your practice and how that that works. Uh, But before we do, did you have any siblings? Yeah, so I had a sister, and for a while I had three stepsisters. So for a while there was five girls in the house. That was a lot of girls. That must have created some interesting family dynamics. Uh, Okay, let's fast forward a bit to high school. Okay. I know you've described yourself really into books. You really like school. So what was your thought process going into college? Did you have an inkling of what you wanted to do? And then how did you decide where you attended college? So as I went into college, I really thought I wanted to be an English professor, because again, I liked reading, I liked writing. In in high school, it was interesting and kind of a little bit of prophetic for where I ended up, because even though I said I'm an employee benefits executive comp, that is a tax practice. So in high school, I was in the math club, even though I loved reading and writing. So I would do things like being in the math club, I would go to writing competitions, and then I got an award my senior year of high school I got an award for economics for being like the best student in economics class. So I've always, I've always had like this math and English kind of thing happening where I, I like both and I did well in both. But going into college, I was really focused on the, the literature. And so I, I majored in literature and I thought I was going to be an English professor. I thought my English professors in college were just super cool. And like there was like mysteries and books that they could pick up on. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. So I really thought I wanted to do that. And then I went to Texas Christian University, quite frankly, because I got a scholarship there. And so it was going to be free for me to go there. So that was that made my decision for me. It was a great school anyway. I just thought it was really funny. I used to, I thought my English professors were so cool, which is fantastic. But there is something about maybe some of those... uh the more nerdy among us, the more cerebral, who really, really smart people were like, oh, they're just so awesome. <laughs> I know, I know. And other people are probably like, oh, these guys are like reading these books and they're pulling these scenes out. Those things don't really exist, you know, but I was just like, oh, it's like, you know, like they're mining for treasure. And I just found that so, such a fascinating aspect of of literature. Just reminds me how, so a lot of, for me, I'm sure I read some great things in college, but a lot of the hardcore English lit stuff I did in high school. Yeah. And I definitely would pick up Cliff's notes here and there. And I would do it even though I read whatever it was. And I remember looking at the Cliff's notes and being like, how was I supposed to decipher that this was a metaphor for that? And I should have known that this happened in Macbeth or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I, in some ways I share your adoration for people who seem to intuitively get that and didn't need somebody explain it to them. Right. I definitely needed it explained to me. But again, I just thought like, it was like a super talent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. So we, we know, you know, spoiler alert, we know you aren't an English professor now, but keep walking me through. So then, so what happens after college? So, so I was, you know, while I was in college, 
I had a couple of my English professors actually say to me, like, have you ever thought about going to law school? And I hadn't. And so I explored and I said, what is that? I said, well, it's three more years of school, which was not thrilling to me. But but we also then honestly started talking about the money aspect of it. And it sounded like, okay, maybe I can make a little more money in law school than I would as an English professor and just finding a job, right? Like they were very honest with me, you know, good luck being an English professor and trying to find a good job in a good college. It's just, it's not maybe going to happen. It's really difficult. So they steered me towards law school. So I decided I wanted to go to law school and took the LSAT and all that good stuff. And really for me at that point, the decision was to go to University of Texas Law School or go, you know, apply to other law schools. And so I applied to a few East Coast law schools. I got into University of Pennsylvania and I decided I wanted to do that because I had spent my summers in Maryland. So I had experience living on the East Coast and I thought it would be kind of cool to go, you know, go back to the East Coast and do my law school career there. So I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. A couple of questions before we get into that law school experience yeah. and transition. And I'm stating the obvious, but is, was the thought process for your professors that you're interested in English and that's really a great basis to be an attorney? Or do you do you know what they saw in you that made them want to recommend that? It was the reading. Um, I'm sorry, it was the writing, right? I was a they I was a good writer. Maybe they thought my writing was more informative than creative. <laughs> and so maybe that would be better to be a lawyer because I was never going to be a creative writer. My verbal skills, I think I was able to uh, describe my thoughts in a very clear way. And then, you know, kind of the, the back and forth. I liked in those classes to have that back and forth, right? You say this, but what about this? And what do you think about that? And it's not, I wasn't argumentative with them, but I liked to have, you know, that back and forth. That exchange, yeah. And and talk about this and think about this. And I think they saw those skills as lawyer skills, which they are. Yeah, I'm sitting here and I'm like, why weren't you a litigator? The, all those things are great litigation skills. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. Go back to that. There we go. We'll get to that. All right. So you you show up at University of Pennsylvania. What, what was that like for you? Was it an easy transition or was it difficult? That was incredibly difficult. So I showed up at University of Pennsylvania. In my entire law school class, there were three people from the South. It was me and two people from Florida. I think that was like the only three students from below the Mason-Dixon line. And I had a Texas accent and everybody else at the law school was basically from the East Coast, right? They're from Boston or New York or Philadelphia, you know, all the kind of those big East Coast towns. So I I showed up with my Texas twang and I noticed that as these other students were talking to me, they would talk slow like I was dumb. And it was very noticeable that they spoke to me in a very different tone of voice and a different speed than, you know, the person from Chicago. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's my Texas accent. And they're reacting to it. Like I'm stupid because I'm from the South. It was a really eye-opening experience. So I dropped my Texas accent in about a week. I just lost it. I'm still pausing at them talking slow enough so that the Southerner can understand yeah, exactly. the approach they had. Exactly. So I felt pretty outcast with that group of people. And over time, it got better. And and we got to know each other, of course. And of course, it was your first week of school and you don't know anybody anyway. And 
they may not have actually even come across the Southern person before because a lot of them, you know, they went to college on the East Coast and it's just totally East Coast centric. But I was, I was definitely a fish out of water. And how was it adjusting academically? I mean, the, the strengths with like English and reading and language, was that helpful in adjusting to law school? It was helpful, but there was, I mean, it was still intimidating because at that level of people in that room, they all felt so smart, as well-read as I thought I was. They, I think they were better read, you know, they just, they had come from families with a lot more money than my family had. So I felt that they were way more polished. It just, it was like, wow, I'm in the big times now. And it was so, it was intimidating. After I went through my first semester and I got good grades, that gave me a lot of confidence. But that first semester was hard for me. I really appreciate you sharing that. I'm, I'm sure I've said this multiple times on the show before, but as we get law students listening, I think it's so important and frankly powerful for somebody who's in law school to hear someone who's now a partner. Yeah. Because we can, you know, law students and those who aspire to be a partner in a law firm, look at partners are like clearly, you know, Lee Riley had it all figured out. Law school is probably super simple for her. Yeah. She's, so, but to hear that, oh, this was hard, I just think it's important. I mean, it was a path, right? You know, if I look at the, the last 25 years, it was a 2000 mile path that I walked step by step down. It was not like I got plopped at the end of the path by any means. So, and each step of the way, yeah, you just, you learn and you grow and you pick up more confidence, but boy, I did not have that confidence. At the you just have to, you just have to keep going. You just got to yeah. And then, so what was the process for you for finding a job after law school, as well as determining your practice area? <laughs> so that's an interesting story too. So I got my, my first law school job was actually not at Foley and Lardner. It was at Morgan Lewis and Bacchus in Philadelphia. Cause I thought I was going to stay there. So I interviewed with, you know, 14 law firms. I think I got 14 job offers. So it was a great experience from that standpoint. I liked Morgan Lewis. So I summered there. My summer was rough. <laughs> I'm getting a theme. I'm getting a theme over my law school career. My summer was rough because I knew I didn't want to be a litigator because I was such an introvert. And moot court competition in law school was my, that was one of the worst experiences of my life. I hated it with a passion, just hated every aspect of that. So I'm like, I can't be a litigator. And the only other thing I knew about was business law. Okay, so I'm going to be a business lawyer. So I get my first project as a summer associate, it's some business law project. I do it. I absolutely hate it. <laughs> and I remember going home. I think it like took me two weeks to get that project done. I went two weeks into my summer class and I was crying because I was like, I can't believe I just spent two years in law school and all this money and I don't want to do this job. I hate law. I can't believe this. I'm so stupid. I made such a big mistake. And so we, I shared an office with another summer associate and fortunately, like her family were lawyers. And so she was aware, like there's lots of types of law, right? And so she said, Lee, like, don't give up. There's other types of law. Let's just start asking questions. So then I started talking to different people at Morgan Lewis. And then somebody said, try an employee benefits project. I'm like no clue what that is, but sure, I'll try it. And I did it and I loved it. And so then I found my home. Well, that, that is so lucky also because and it's funny, a lot of what I say about the law is portrayed through the lens of Alexis Robertson. So I hope less listeners realize this, a former litigator turned diversity inclusion professional. But I think employee benefits is one of those areas that's harder to learn about. 
Yeah. It's not one that in law school, they're like, you can close deals or you can go to trial right. and, or you can be employee benefit. You might not hear it about it at all. Right. It's so, so it's, yeah. It's so fortunate that that happened. So what about, and I think maybe we'll probably just get into like your practice in general, but what about that assignment was so different for you? And and then of course, yeah, tell us more about what it is about your practice that you really enjoy. So the the assignment, I remember this so clearly, um, it was a COBRA assignment. COBRA is a law that talks about the ability of an employee to stay in the employer's group health plan after termination of employment. So there was a, a question around COBRA and there were regulations and I went to the regulations and I found an answer. And I'm like, oh, there's like an area of law where like you ask a question and you can go someplace and find an answer. This is amazing. I love this. Because, you know, a lot of business law is not like that, right? A lot of business law is more like business counseling and there's not necessarily a right path. And I did do a litigation project one summer and I was a summer associate and it was like, I had to research cases and one case said one thing and a different case said something different, but the facts looked the same and I couldn't reconcile those things. So I found like that aspect of summer associate projects really stressful. And when I got that project where there was a question I could find the answer, I was just sold. That was it for me. And that's a regulatory practice. And of course, that's another, right? In law school, they just don't focus on regulatory practices. Not at all. And I love that you just said that because I don't know that I would even, I mean, I've been around the law in a lot of ways. and I know a lot of the practices, but I think that's really accurate what you said, because you're right. Often as litigators, you're giving clients probabilities. You're saying, well, we think the judge will rule like this. Or in law school, if you're in torts, you're arguing all the things that might be the way. Right. To interpret it, you're certainly not like, oh, according to subsection whatever of whatever, the answer is yeah. A. <laughs> right. Or you're negotiating, like your, your transactions or commercial lawyer, and you're negotiating, but negotiation by definition is you get a little, you give a little, but it, is it right? I don't know. Let's see how things play out. Let's hope it's good enough. Right? That's exactly right. And you're also giving me a little bit of empathy for summer associates because it's true when you're a summer associate and you're asked to research something. Usually your answer is, particularly say it's litigation context, is I think it's most like this, maybe, probably. And then you add in that you're a summer associate and you're leaving in a few weeks. And if they have questions, you're like, here's this really long memo because I'm sure you're going to have questions about it. And I don't really know what's important or why the judge in this case went one way and then in a different case went in a different way. And the facts to me look absolutely identical. But I hope you can glean something out of this. Yeah, but that's exactly right. So you find you find your practice area. You have to go back to law school to finish. But it sounds like at that point you knew this is what I want to do when I graduate. Can I please join employee benefits? Yes. So yes, and they were happy to have me. And it was um, it was a great group of lawyers. Over Morgan Lewis, or one of the best from employee benefits practice. So it was a wonderful place to start my career. And it was you know it was a it's a huge huge learning curve though i have to say any kind of tax practice and a lot of these regulatory practices it takes a very long time this goes back to this perseverance <laughs> i've persevered uh, many times and being a benefits lawyer requires a lot of perseverance well and before we started recording i mentioned how i've had a few other members of your group on the show kelsey kelsey gorman as well as Belinda Morgan. So if someone's really interested in Arrest, so there's two other people they can also hear from. But I would love if you would elaborate a little bit on 
what the practice area is, particularly that tax connection, because I don't know that I explicitly got that in the previous podcasts on the subject. Yeah. Yeah. So in the employee benefits world, there's like two, two places we go to for answers. One is the Internal Revenue Code, and then the other is ERISA. So we have two, literally two books that I look in and for answers. And the reason that tax code is relevant is because so much of employee benefits has tax benefits for people, right? If you think about participating in a 401k plan, you can take your paycheck and on a pre-tax basis, stick money into a 401k plan. That's tax beneficial to you. But in order for you to have the opportunity to do that, that 401k plan has to be set up in a certain way. And so that's the tax aspects of it. So our tax is not really, it's not really like doing math. We don't do math problems per se. Really the tax code is just a list of rules. That's the best way to think about it. And for people who want to get into benefits and they're like, ooh, once you say tax, I'm like, no, thank you. Just think of the tax code as a list of rules. It's a checklist of things that you have to know about and make sure your documents comply with and you got it. It's pretty straightforward. That makes a lot of sense. It makes it less scary. And I think when I talked about this practice area in the past, we focused on the ERISA side, but didn't explicitly talk. And it it makes sense that those things are are tied and that you need to be in compliance with both of these Mm -hmm. major regulations, along with probably a number of other things I'm not contemplating right now, but that you're helping your clients set things up such that they are in accordance with the law, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what we do. We make sure that, you know, there's, and it's compliance and consulting aspects to it. So that's what makes it really fun. So the client, you know, wants to set up a 401k plan and they got to set it up in the the way that legally complies with the law. But then within that, there's lots of choices. Who should be eligible to participate in the plan? Should I have a one-year waiting period? Should I have a vesting schedule on the employer contributions? When should distributions be made available? So there's a framework but all those decisions have to be made within the framework. But what we do is we help clients, you know, make sure they're legally compliant, but also help them think through those design decisions. Is that good? Is that bad? How's that going to affect your employees? Is it going to achieve what you want? So that's the consulting aspects of it. That's fun. And I want to take you back a bit because what we can't do is march through every year of your career and say, hey, and then what happened then? But I would love to get your reflections on different stages. So I know you mentioned when you first started, there's a really steep learning curve. So I'd love if you comment more on that and maybe talk a little bit just about your overall path Mm -hmm. to partnership. So I'd say the first three years were, uh, frankly, kind of horrendous. I cried a lot. (laughs) I did. I cried a lot at home at night. And in part, because I just felt so stupid. There was so much to learn. I would get a project. I would think I would come up with the right answer. I would go, you know, hand it to the partner. And they would say, oh, but in 1985, there was this ruling from the IRS that said something different. And I was just like, how am I supposed to know about this thing from 1985? I was still in school at that point. So it it just like, I felt stupid constantly. And it was really it was difficult for me because I always say to people, if you think about going through school, you live school in three-month increments, right? You have a semester. At the end of the semester, you take your final, you get your A. So it's kind of like this thing, like you can master everything in three months or less. <laughs> and then you get to the law firm and that is not the case at all. Not even a little. And it's really people being like, you know, in five years, you might kind of know what's going on, but by 10, you'll like really get it. <laughs> right, right. 
So I was not expecting how hard it was going to be those first three years where it felt like I was learning a foreign language and, you know, having to just figure out how to be a lawyer and the skills involved in that. So that was... Well, and also when you're very accustomed to being competent, like you said, you really enjoyed school. You did really well in school. I'm sure you were used to collecting those those A's, those gold stars. And there is a certain, it can feel a little absurd or almost perverse when you're a junior associate because the partner asked you to do something or the senior associate asked you to do something. You did it for them. And they said, no, well, didn't you know that in 1985? And you're like, no, I didn't know that. And if you knew that, why didn't, why didn't you do this? <laughs> right. Or I would draft something and I would be so proud to turn it in and then I would get it back and there's red ink all over it. And I'm like, well, they kept two of my sentences. So that was good. So yeah, it was pretty, it's deflating. <laughs> it was ego deflating experience. You know, and Leah, I'm sure we'll get to this, but just to make people who maybe in that stage of their career feel better, you're supposed to just try and learn from all this. It's really hard. It is very ego deflating, but the spoiler alert is you're supposed to say, I didn't know that. Thank you for the time to mark this up because now I've learned something. And that's just the best way to train lawyers in many ways, but it's super hard. It is very hard, but I will say, you know, and in that whole experience, the one thing that I, I did do and that kind of kept me going is I wouldn't get upset, right? I wouldn't get upset that my product wasn't great. And I would look at it and say, yeah, it's better. <laughs> what they did is better than what I gave them. It just is, you know, and, and just being very objective, like I'm not there yet, but I'm glad they showed me what it should look like. Absolutely. And, and now take me to the next phase. So that was the like one to three year phase. What's what's the next time period in, in development? And then the next time period is kind of like the pre-partner. So kind of like years four through nine, 10. And that's where then they, my, you know, our partners, I'd moved to Foley and Lardner by that point. And then the, the partners started to, you know, let me loose talking to clients. And that, that was scary as I'll get out. Cause you know, I, talk to a client on the phone and I'd answer a question and I'd hang up the phone and then I'd run to a partner and say, I told the client this, I hope that was right. And after they said, yes, you were right for several times, I got a little more confidence. Um, but the the talking to the client for me really is where I started to really enjoy it because it, you just, and I say this and I try to encourage partners to do this with the, the younger associates. That is where you see that you're having the impact right? That is where you see that you've got this client and they call you and they're in a panic because something has gone wrong. And you can say, it's okay. I've got this. Let me help you through this. And at the end of the call, they're like, Whew, okay. And you just, you hear it in their voice or you see it on their face that they're, they're just better at the end of the call than they were at the beginning. And I think it can go from depending, and this is also someone who's a litigator on very large matters. So there were times where my work would feel very academic to me because yeah. I was so far away yes. from the client. And I think as you get closer to that relationship, you're talking directly to the client. It's, oh, one, this is real. Like this isn't just yeah. something I'm writing based on some abstract something or other, yeah. but then also that really direct value that you're, you've really helped, you really, really helped someone out. And a person, you know, and that's the a other person. thing too, right? We all in the law firm and in the law context, we talk about the client, like it's this thing, this entity out there. But the reality is there's a human being on the other side of that email. There's a human being on the other side of that phone call and they need your help. And that's a pretty awesome place to be in. And we cannot get off this 
this podcast without getting specifically to some of this client development relationship management, which I know you advise um, attorneys fully on frequently. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a bookmark there and hopefully I remember to go back. So then, then what was next? What was the transition to, to partner like for you? Yeah. So the transition to partner in many ways was a a non-transition because I, by that point I had already been, you know, had a lot of clients that I was helping them on a day-to-day basis. I was known, you know, pretty well known in the firm for other people that needed help with employee benefits and they would call me or they refer clients to me. So becoming partner was a a title change, but not, not really changed in my day-to-day in any way. And tell me about, maybe this is a place to pick up on some of that client relationship. So I think of you, Lee, as a, a number of things in the firm, but I know you really are a resource in terms of a variety of internal trainings that we do as we're helping our lawyers develop their skill sets. And I think relatively recently, I think you even did a presentation on the different types of partners and client service. And I don't know, maybe we can connect this to the introversion thing as well, yeah. because how does how does that work when you do feel like more of an introvert, but in a way that client engagement seems like a more extroverted activity, but just say, say more about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so there's four, what we call four styles of, you know, successful partner business development. I'm just going to talk about two. I'll talk about me and I'll talk about the absolute opposite of me. The absolute opposite of me is rainmakers and rainmakers are those types of people that are friends to everybody like they walk into the room and the, by the time they leave the room, they have five new friends, right? Everybody in the community knows them. They're just active. They're like, I call them my social butterflies. They are out there and they're just those types of people. Like I said, that is not me. That is a hundred percent not me. In fact, my husband and I have a rule that like on the weekends, we used to go out with friends like two nights in a row, like Friday night, we'd go out with friends and Saturday night, we'd go out with friends. And on Sunday, I would be totally exhausted because my de- my introversion is if I spend time with people, it's just tiring for me. It's depleting. It's depleting. I love doing it, but it's so tiring for me. So we have a role now, like only one night on the weekends can we go out with people. Otherwise I'm a zombie. So massive introvert. So my type of um, business development is called being a brain surgeon. And it means I'm a, I'm a specialist in a complex area and I would spend my time uh, reading, (laughs) reading my law, analyzing it, right? All those same skills I talked about that I like to do as a child that I loved about being, you know, thinking about being a professor is the analyzing it. So a ton of reading, ton of analyzing. So I could be like a really, really good ERISA lawyer. The trick of being a brain surgeon and being like this intellectual difficult thing is being able, I call it, to translate it to normal person language. And that is the skill set you need to have to be a really good brain surgeon. I think there may be some listeners. I mean, those listening from Foley, they've they've probably heard you give this talk before, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Um, but but for those um outside of the firm, there's I'm certain some people listening who are like, wait, particularly law students, wait you can be a partner and not be that prototypical rainmaker. What? Like, you know, minds are blown. And I think it's so important just to make that clear. And I don't think I've talked about this in the nearly 50 episodes of the show that we've had. There's different models for client success. Yes. Different ones. Not everyone's the same. For sure. And, you know, the other two models, just real quick, are um, the client relationship person. And in fact, the 
vast majority of partners fall into client relationships. We, you know, we say they're the people that keep the trains running, right? The clients contact them, have a massive project, they staff the project, they make sure it's being done on time, they're constantly interacting with the client, keeping the client happy. Again, those are not necessarily social butterflies, right? They're, they spend their time taking great care of the clients. And then there's the fourth one we call the hired gun. And these are the people who are out there kind of making a name for themselves in their area of law. They're writing and they're speaking about their expertise and they'll bring in clients because they're an expert in an area, but they take their expertise and they send it out into the world. Whereas brain surgeons take their expertise and they kind of keep it within the firm. They market within their own law firm. So it, it takes a lot of different, and you, you kind of need all of those. They all need to, to be there and work together. Absolutely. And when you've been in a firm long enough, you can actually start sort of slotting people in when you hear those. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense based on so-and-so and so-and-so. Although I also imagine that those roles can change for people. But it sounds like some of it, you may gravitate to one thing or, or another based on your personality type, but also your relationships may change or you may have a smattering of more than one of those categories. Right. Because I started, you know, I'm a brain surgeon and now what a point person. And so I'm a brain surgeon because I still spend so much of my time learning my area of law and keeping up like that never goes away for me. But I also now manage the employee benefits aspects for many clients. So the clients contact me with their benefits issues. I staff them, manage the projects, make sure that that client is being well taken care of in my space, you know, in the employee benefits space. So I'm this hybrid at this point in my career. I'll never be a rainmaker though, ever. Well, it's funny, as you're explaining that, I was thinking about how it is that somebody can figure out what works best for them. And I think you probably do a fair, lot, a fair amount of counseling internally just to help people figure out what they are or what they would like to grow grow into. And is that is that where you start hearing people say things like, I don't know, to that, say, senior counsel who's not far from partner, you need to come up with a, a business plan or there's some other sort of self-awareness exercises that one can do? Yeah, it's a struggle because I think we all inherently know our style. I think when, you know, when I lay out the four styles to people, I, I find that most people say, yeah, that one's me. Like they just know, like that one's me. Some people are aspirational and, and I try to tell people like, you might admire somebody, but just because you admire them doesn't mean you're going to become them. You know, like I think rainmakers are amazing people. I would love to have the skills that they have, but I'm self-aware enough that I don't have those, right? So you got to be a little careful about kind of who you idolize versus who you realistically can become. But I'd say by and large, most people immediately identify to an area. What is difficult is that sometimes their mentor is a different style. And so you might be a rainmaker, in fact, right? And and you're you should be spending your time like being on boards of directors and going nonprofits and PTAs and all this stuff. Like, please go out in the community and be you because you're amazing and people gravitate to you. But if their mentor, let's say is a brain surgeon, then they're gonna be like, you should write an article. And of course, no, don't write an article. That's not what you're good at. Like, just don't do that. And so we got to get people matched up. And this is, I think, what makes the path hard. I'm taking it back to our title, The Path and the Practice, uh -huh. is 
as you're developing your career as an attorney, you want to get as many inputs as possible, get advice from a lot of people, but you have to know what advice is applicable to you and what to discard. Yes. And that is really hard when you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on. It is very hard. It is very hard. And a lot of people, you know, number one, will think they have to do all of it. And I, and I try to tell our associates here, like, like when our marketing department makes a presentation to you and they say, sit on a board of director and keep in touch with everybody from your law school and be on your church's board and write seven articles and go to and do this and do that and do the other. Like what they're laying out is the buffet and you pick from that buffet what is what you want. But please don't eat everything in the buffet. That is not a good idea. Because you'll get sick and it won't feel good and it won't work out for you. Exactly. That is not going to do anybody any good. And I think what you just said also, and granted, we've been talking specifically about business development, but a lot of that wisdom, I think, also applies to just figuring out your practice group and your overall trajectory. In some ways, it's, I mean, not even some, it's a testament to you, for example, that the assignments you did when you were a summer associate, you're like, I really don't like these. I mean, I think, I think there are many people who are also wired to be like, I don't like this, but I think this is all there is. So I'm going to force myself and I will be miserable versus having, you know, they need, everyone needs that, that office mate to say, we need to t- ask more questions. <laughs> right. Like this can't be all there is. There has to be other things. No, exactly. But that is, that is so hard. But I also think that is just a really important point of kind of, kind of unlocking one's career path is trying to find, and I'm not saying everything's sunshine and rainbows and your heart's going to sing automatically when you find the thing that's right for you, but trying to find some level of alignment with your practice and who you actually are is definitely key. Yes. And it's out there. It is. You just got to find it. Absolutely. Well, and I want to talk a bit about, about Foley. I mean, what we, we can't get off the podcast without bragging about the firm a little bit, but so I'm curious either what attracted you to the firm when you did lateral or what has kept you here over the years? What is it about, about Foley and Lardner that you like? So that I can remember very clearly from interviewing, this is, yeah, this is interesting. And this is always stuck in, stuck in my head. So when I was uh, working in Philadelphia and you would go, you know, into, into any attorney's office, they had their, you know, their law school degree and their college degree, you know, very prominently framed and displayed. And it's just your, your kind of your pedigree was incredibly important there. And then when I went to interview at Foley, and you know, I went office to office to do my interview. Like nobody had their nobody had their pedigree on the wall. It was this atmosphere of like, who are you today? What have you got to offer right now? And let's talk about where you want to go. And I found that really refreshing. I just I liked that atmosphere of, you know, this it's just, you know, what can you offer right now? And it was great. It was a it was a very more like egalitarian kind of feel to it. Something I really appreciate about about Foley is people don't hide the fact that they have lives outside of the firm. Yeah. In many ways, this I think this podcast has exhibited that. And someone might say there's a selection bias. And yeah, there is, because I get to pick who's on the show. But there's no secret about families or other, you know, organizations you work with or I don't know, bands you may play in or just things that you don't bill for and letting your colleagues know that they're important to you. And I think it's interesting. I have never thought about that. But yeah, if you're a law student and you're interviewing, do the offices have the pedigree or do the offices have the pictures of the family 
your vacation pictures, the knitting project you did hung on the wall. That'll say something about where you're going to go work. It absolutely does. And I know everything's weird right now with interviewing because so much of it is virtual. But that is a good tip for callbacks if you are physically in someone's office. Because I remember, and this is what 15 years ago, you're exhausted. They look at you and they're like, Do you have any more questions for me? You've had you've talked to six other people, you don't know what to ask. But you look and you're like, Lee, is is that a picture of your family behind you? I've just been and the person, if if that's something you can engage over and is in their office, people love talking about that stuff, particularly if they manage to bring it to work. So that's just like a tip for law students as they go into OCI. But I think that's a I think that's exactly right. And that ability, and so for me, you can imagine as a diversity inclusion professional, why that matters a lot to me is this whole, you know, that it's cliche language with that bringing your authentic self to work. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel that you have to hide, you know, what you were doing this weekend or why it's really important that you leave the office at 430 today. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a new associate, I wouldn't try that every single day. Right. But I think football is a firm that really respects that. I mean, we want you to be people. We want you to, you need to be a human being first and foremost, and then you can be a lawyer second, and that's actually okay. Well, and let's connect it back because as you said earlier, our clients are people. Yes. It all works together. So it it? really helps if you're one. And I remember when I had um, Phil Phillips on the show, who's the office managing partner in Detroit, he said out loud, he said, because none of this matters if you're not able to see your family and if your family's not okay. And I just love that he said that because I think that really does show a value of the firm. No, it's got to be the whole thing. Well, and as we wrap up our time together, I have two last questions for you. One, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that you haven't had the opportunity to? And then finally, it's what's your overall advice to someone navigating a legal career? You've already given so much great advice, but what would your parting words be to someone? So I think for the parting words, and people are not going to like to hear this, but oh, well, I'm going to say this anyway, you have to be ready to fail. You have to be ready to fail. And that is so, so, so tough. And, you know, I'm thinking of myself back in law school. And if somebody had said that to me, I probably would have started hyperventilating, but it's just a reality. You know, you're, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail and it's all okay. It really is. Look, we we picked law because people literally won't die. And so, you know, if you went into career in medicine, I might have a different thing for you. But we went into law because none of us wanted to be doctors and have people's lives on our hands. Nobody will die and it'll be okay. And you're going to make mistakes and it's fine. That is wonderful advice. That is, it's great advice. And in many ways, you'll learn how to fail in new and different ways. Hopefully it's not continually the same way you create new ones. Yeah. I'm like, I consider myself an expert in failure because, you know, I I have several different roles at the firm. In addition to my practice, you know, I'm a vice chair in the business law department. I'm also, you know, legal counsel to the firm itself and their benefit plans. So I'm juggling, constantly juggling all sorts of stuff. And some days I just am not good at all of it. And, you know, I used to beat myself up about it. And one day I just decided enough of that. And I stopped and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment when I stopped doing that. I also love that you said that as well, because what, you, what you're saying is you've developed, I'd like to think you've developed self-compassion or at the very least just stopped beating yourself up about things, which is, is a version of that, I think. Yeah. And you have to do that to survive because, you know, this is a 35 year career. And if you go into it thinking 
that you're going to breeze through or it's going to be easy or there won't be a day that is just not going to be a good day for you. Like don't, don't have those expectations. That's kind of crazy. And it's funny because given my role at the firm, I want to create as many systems and structures to make success inevitable, right? Like if I, in a perfect world, that's what I would do for everyone. But so much of it is that internal coaching that no matter what review system we set up, no matter what kind of professional development, at the end of the day, it's it's your work and your decisions yeah. to, to deal with the really hard critic in your head. Yes. And I feel like you're talking to to that directly. And on the flip side, be really proud of things you should be proud of and don't diminish your accomplishments and don't diminish your intelligence. And so make sure that when you get those moments to be proud of yourself, you take advantage of those. And and so you, you have those moments where you feel great. Thank you so much, Lee. I don't think there's a better note to end on. Thank you for being on the show. And if somebody has comments or questions for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.